If you have a Bible, I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, whether in this room, at one of our other locations, or wherever you might be online, I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I love God's Word so much. Like, I just don't think it was a coincidence that last Sunday, in the middle of this series on sexuality, that our Bible reading together would be in a text that tells the story of a woman caught in sexual immorality who is being ostracized by the religious elite, but who Jesus forgave and saved and turned her brokenness into beauty. God, make us a church where many sinful people find forgiveness and grace and mercy in Jesus, knowing that we are all sinful people in need of forgiveness and grace and mercy in Jesus. And now this week to come back to 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 to hear God's good word to us amidst the sea of cultural confusion that surrounds us when it comes to sexuality, singleness, and marriage in our world today. So specifically, I want to show you today the beauty of both singleness and marriage according to God. We have a ton of ground to cover, so let's dive right in. I'll put the verses up on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Here is God's word to us. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now let me pause there for just a second before we go on and acknowledge that this letter that we're reading in the Bible was written to a real group of Christians in a real church in a real city called Corinth in the first century. And Paul, who's writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing something they had written to him. So Corinth was a sex-crazed, sexually confused culture. And many of the people in the church were brand new believers in Jesus. And they were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in this culture around them. And Paul had been telling them to flee from sexual immorality. We saw this two weeks ago, a command from God to flee any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And that sounded so extreme to them, much like it sounds to us today, to the point where they just began to think, well, then maybe we should just flee any and all sexual activity, period. So apparently they had written him saying it seems good for a man not to have any sexual relationship with a woman or vice versa. Is that right? In response to that question, God says through Paul to them and to us, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So we'll keep going here and then come back to all this. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind 
and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, we'll stop there. There's so much here. I want to show you, in the next few minutes, three foundational truths about both singleness and marriage that then lead to two commands from God. The first of which will be for all of us, whether we're single or married, and then the second specifically for those who are married. And then that will lead all of us to the gospel. So that's, that's where we're going. You might take notes along the way. Let's start with these three foundational truths about both singleness and marriage. Here they are. Number one, both singleness and marriage are good gifts. They're both good gifts. So I'll come back to this on the screen in just a minute, but let me show this to you straight from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul talking as a single man. He said, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And the Bible's referring there to the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And in the very next verse, verse 8, Paul, again single, writes to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So it's good to be single, Paul says. Both singleness and marriage are good gifts. And when we read that, we need to realize how revolutionary this was for Paul to write. It was revolutionary in first century Corinth. Think about it. Based on this command to flee sexual immorality, to, so to flee all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that means to be single is not to engage in sexual activity. And that sounded crazy to people in Corinth, to people who thought you need sexual activity in order to be fully yourself, much like our culture today says. In the Bible, God is saying, no, you don't. It's actually good to be single and to not engage in sexual activity. It's good. It's a gift from God. And God never gives bad gifts. And this was revolutionary, not just in first century Corinth or in our culture today. It was revolutionary in biblical history. So I want to show you this. I want to take you on a super quick tour of the Bible. And I want to show you how Jesus and the gospel totally changed the view of singleness in the Bible. We won't have time to turn to all these places, so I'm just going to list them out. You might write them down. I'll put some of them on the screen. But it all starts way back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the Bible, verses 27 and 28. The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God created man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply. How would they do that? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Man and woman will come together as one flesh in marriage, and they will have babies. They will multiply. Which is why, so a few chapters later, when God is forming the people of Israel, his covenant people in the Old Testament, God tells them he's going to bless them and multiply them. So what does he promise them? Look at Genesis chapter 15, 
Verse five, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your what be? So shall your offspring be. God says, I'm gonna give you offspring, more numerous than the stars in the sky, like tons of children and grandchildren. And God's design for producing offspring was what? Marriage. From the very beginning, marriage and offspring were central in the blessing of God. And God gives the same promise of children through marriage to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verse 3, Jacob in Genesis 28, 14. We just walked through all of this in our Bible reading, and it's interesting. Some of the most tense moments in these initial stories in the Bible revolve around barrenness. It was a curse to be barren. Sarah was initially barren. Rachel was initially barren. And I say curse because if, you're fa- if you were barren, your family legacy would stop with you because you wouldn't have children. Genesis 48 verse 16 says your name would be virtually cut off from the earth if you didn't have kids. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 6 says your name was blotted out from Israel if you didn't have a child. What that means is you didn't want to be single in the Old Testament. Singleness was like a curse. Most all the classifications of singles were undesirable. Singles included widows, and often those widows would remarry very soon. Singles included eunuchs who had their sexual ability physically taken from them. Singles included people with diseases like leprosy who were unapproachable by others. That's why if you were a young man or a young woman, you got married ASAP. You didn't want to be single, which heightens then how we view Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha as prophets whom God called to be single in the Old Testament. That was undesirable in their day because the culture of God's people in the Old Testament equated the the blessing of God with marriage and children, which made sense in light of the way the Old Covenant worked. So the people of God would fill the earth primarily through procreation, through having offspring. And you couldn't do that if you were single. You were out. But then, watch this. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. So this is a promise of Jesus coming to die on the cross. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, in other words, his descendants, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He didn't have descendants who would come after him, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, watch this, he shall see his what? Offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Are you following this? Jesus who, by the way, would be the offspring of a woman in a supernatural way, just like God promised in Genesis chapter three, he would be cut off out of the land of the living without any physical descendants. So he's single, yet he has offspring. How's that possible? His offspring are those he died to save. 
Oh, this is the gospel, so pay particularly close attention. If you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, the good news of the Bible is that God has sent Jesus to die on a cross for sinners so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven of all their sin and can become a child of God. You can do this today. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do this today. And when you do, and for all who have, realize what's happening here in the Bible. God is foretelling here in the Old Testament how his family will multiply, ultimately not through physical procreation, but through spiritual regeneration. Not through babies being born, but through people being born again through faith in Jesus. And this totally changes everything. Don't miss it. Like the gospel, the new covenant, the coming of Jesus would radically transform the picture of God's blessing. And you see it promised in the very next chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 54.1 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. The rest of this chapter goes on to talk about how the Lord God, your maker, is your husband. And he gives new life through his spirit to all who trust in him. Many who will trust in him as a result of hearing about him through your life. Then you get two chapters over in Isaiah 56, verse 3, you read this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You're hearing this, eunuchs, singles, like don't worry. You're not a dry tree. Your name will not be cut off. Why? Because God's coming kingdom is not ultimately dependent on physical offspring. God's kingdom expands through spiritual offspring and your name will be better than if you had sons and daughters. All of this was being promised in the Old Testament But it wasn't a part of Old Testament culture, which is why people were shocked when Jesus came on the scene. He started talking about marriage, and he started talking about singleness in desirable ways. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Very similar to what the Corinthians were saying. And Jesus responded in Matthew 19, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs, so this is not physically talking about eunuchs now, who have have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Jesus just said in these verses, it's good to be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were shocked. This was revolutionary. In the Old Testament, God's people multiplied almost exclusively through marriage and children. Now in the New Testament, we're seeing a picture start to unfold of people from every nation and tribe and tongue born not of natural birth, but of new life. People born again through the Spirit of God. And that new life and the spread of that new life can be a reality regardless of whether you are single or married. So you put it all together and you come back to 1 Corinthians 7, God is clearly saying 
singleness is a good gift from God that includes heroes of the New Testament, like, well, most notably Jesus, as well as John the Baptist, and Paul, Silas, Luke, Titus, Apollos, Lydia, Phoebe, Philip's four unmarried daughters. We could go on and on and on. Singleness is a good gift from God, and marriage is a good gift from God. And part of the problem in 1 Corinthians 7 is addressing people who thought, well, I'd rather be what I'm not. So people who were married were thinking, marriage is not all I thought I'd, it would be, so I'd rather be single again. And people who were single thinking, I'd rather be married. And God is saying in his words, stop. And trust my goodness in your life. Now that doesn't mean if you are single that it's wrong or sinful to desire a husband or wife. First Corinthians 7 actually affirming that desire while also saying as long as you're single, trust that God is your loving father, that God has you where you are right now, that God has not forgotten about you, and that God is always, always, always working for your good. Singleness is not a state to be endured as you wait for something better. And we'll get to this more specifically when we get to the last part of 1 Corinthians 7 and see God's specific word to singles in a couple of weeks. But for now, I would just point out, so parents, what this means is that success for our kids is not necessarily them getting married. We need to be very careful as parents not to implicitly or explicitly communicate to our children that marriage is the ideal and singleness is second best. When that is not true biblically, I pray every week for my kids that they would either marry a godly wife or husband or thrive in singleness. And children, students, in addition to anyone else who is single, yes, a potential future marriage is good, but it is not the only option for you to glorify God maximally in your life. Singleness is not a state to be endured as you wait for something better. And if you're married, marriage is not just an obligation you have to fulfill or an arrangement to be tolerated when you would prefer something else. Singleness and marriage are both good gifts that God has given to each of us. Which means that if someone is single and gets married, then they exchange one good gift from God for another good gift from God. Or if someone is married and their spouse passes away, then they exchange one good gift from God for another good gift from God. Now one caveat I'll mention is that there are circumstances in marriage when God allows for divorce. And we'll talk more about that next week because that's what comes next in 1 Corinthians 7. But for now, we see that both singleness and marriage are good gifts. And, so second truth, both singleness and marriage display the gospel. So we're gonna pick up the pace a little here, but I wanna show you how the Bible teaches this. Again, we don't have time to turn to all these places, but you might write down Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 through 33 makes clear that God designed marriage between a man and a woman from the beginning of creation as a picture of Jesus and the church. A husband illustrates Jesus' love for the church by laying down his life to love his wife. 
And a wife illustrates the church's love for Jesus by following the loving leadership of her husband. And this kind of selfless love in both a husband and a wife is evident here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. So we're going to talk about that more in a minute. At the same time, I want to encourage single brothers and sisters, whether you're a child or teenager or you're a senior adult, or no matter how young or old you may be, the gift of singleness also portrays the gospel in a powerful way to the world. Singleness portrays the ultimate identity that we all have in Jesus. Think about it. We live in a world that says you need a spouse to complete you or you need sexual activity to fulfill you. But biblical singleness declares to the world that neither of those things are true. Biblical singleness declares to the world that we are complete in Christ regardless of our marital status. Isaiah 54, John 3, Revelation 19 all describe the Lord as a husband to his people, more satisfying and more eternal than any husband or wife could ever be. And singleness says to the world, I find my ultimate joy in Jesus. And in him I have everything I need in a way that marriage, though also good, doesn't portray in the same way. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, in her singleness once said, there is joy, joy found in nowhere else when we can look up into Christ's face, when he says to us, am I not enough for thee, mine own, with a true, yes, Lord, you are enough. And all the more so in a world that says and is saying to us today, you need sexual activity in order to be fully yourself. And it's not true. So don't buy that lie. Instead, make this truth clear in the world. Jesus and his word and his ways are all we need to experience all that he has created us to be. Singleness portrays our ultimate identity in Jesus and our eternal identification with the church because we know that physical family relationships in this world, as wonderful as they are, are passing away. And only a relationship with Jesus through faith in him as a part of his spiritual family, the church, lasts forever. Jesus makes clear when he's asked about marriage in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying here that marriage is temporary. It's an institution from God for this world that will not be in heaven. So married people are only married in this life. And then for billions and trillions of years, we will all be single. Marriage is temporary. Relationship to Jesus and his church is timeless. And singleness uniquely portrays that reality. All this to say, both singleness and marriage display the gospel. And, number three, both singleness and marriage bring God glory. I want, you want, every follower of Jesus wants to maximally glorify God, right? This is the question that drives us all. How can I most glorify God? And singleness and marriage are both designed to do exactly that. That's where 1 Corinthians 6 left us at the end of that chapter a couple of weeks ago. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
but the sexually immoral person sins against its own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So how do we do that? How do we glorify God with our bodies, whether we are single or married? And that question leads to two commands from God. The first, which we've already seen and we just read, so regardless of whether you are single or married, so this command is for every single one of us. Here it is, run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Flee from, don't flirt with, don't rationalize, don't reason with, run from any and all sexual thinking, desiring, acting, anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And just to clarify, when we're saying flee sexual thinking outside of marriage between a man and a woman, we're talking about lustful thinking, thinking sexually about someone who's not your husband or wife. When we're talking about sexual desiring, we're not saying that it's wrong to have a desire for sexual activity, but that it is sexual immorality to feed or fuel those desires outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And just to clarify one other thing here, because I, I hear this from leaders of our preparing for marriage ministry, where many dating or engaged couples are already living together, when the Bible doesn't give any space for single brothers and sisters in Christ to live like they're married when they're not married. Cohabitation may be common according to our culture, but according to God, it is sin. It is sexual immorality, and God clearly calls you to flee it. So we walked through this, and so much more a couple of weeks ago. As a reminder, we have a whole page of resources that we've created or recommended at mclanebible.org slash sexuality to help you think through more specifics along these lines, particularly as we're trying to keep these gatherings and sermons appropriate for all ages. But I wanna encourage you, dive into those resources. We have a disclaimer at the top that says, keep in mind, none of these resources are perfect, so filter, test all of them through the lens, the light of God's perfect word. And there are some of the questions we're trying to address there where even the different, some different pastors in our church have different perspectives. For example, we asked two of our pastors to answer a question about whether or not someone should attend a same-sex ceremony. And these pastors offered two different perspectives on that question. So we put both up, hopefully in a way that models good biblical dialogue on an issue that may lead to different convictions. And we do that only when the Bible is not directly clear on an issue. But the Bible is clear on this command. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee, 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 run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's clear for all of us in the Bible. And then, if you are married. So we're gonna talk, again, more in depth a couple weeks from now about singleness because that's the focus of the last half of 1 Corinthians 7. But this first part of 1 Corinthians 7 gives a specific command to those who are married. So we'll close here. If you are married, God calls you to run to loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife. Run to loving, 
God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife, meaning God has designed sexual thinking and desiring and acting with your husband or wife to be an expression of love for one another and to bring glory to him. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm doing my best here to keep this GPG rated, but God is specifically saying here that sexual activity is beautiful by his design for marriage. And it should be actively pursued by a husband and a wife. A husband or wife should run to it in loving, God-glorifying ways. I mentioned verse 3, this phrase, husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. That term means that a husband and a wife have a responsibility to give of themselves physically to each other. Now, unfortunately, these verses have often been either ignored in marriage or twisted to mean things God doesn't mean for marriage. So spouses may be tempted to ignore these verses and not to pursue, to run to loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with their husband or wife. Not to prioritize that. Not to show its importance in marriage. Or spouses may twist these verses in ways that lead to demands or hurt or abuse in marriage that is not tolerable, is not loving, and does not bring glory to God. And twisting or ignoring these verses misses God's good design for marriage. What God is saying to husbands and wives here in this command to pursue loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife, he is telling husbands and wives, serve your spouse selflessly. To let your love for your husband or your wife be driven by the question, how can I please you? Not by the demand, here's how you must please me. God tells us, again, Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage illustrates the relationship between Jesus and the church, which means that a wife, yes, looks for ways to honor and please her husband out of selfless love for him, while a husband takes the lead in gently, lovingly pursuing his wife's good and pleasure above his own in such a way that they are both selflessly serving each other. Now you might wonder at this point, well, how can sexual activity be selfless? I thought sexual activity was all about fulfilling your own desires. And this is where I can't improve on the words from one of the resources we recommend called True Sexual Immorality by Daniel Heimbach. And he writes, and I'm gonna hedge a couple words here uh, 
to keep it GEPG, but I think you'll get the point. Some wonder how sexual activity can be truly satisfying or enjoyable without focusing on yourself. The, the idea of selflessness here seems contradictory. Does not getting the most out of this activity require putting your own desires ahead of everything else? The surprising answer is no, both on biblical terms and based on human experience. God has embedded a paradox in how this kind of pleasure works that helps to restrain natural human selfishness. The more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each receives in return. And the more a person focuses on demanding his or her own satisfaction, the less satisfaction is possible. Self-centeredness always destroys satisfaction in this arena, while unselfishness always makes it better. This is how God has wired husbands and wives for marriage to serve each other selflessly in this way and in so doing, to satisfy your spouse regularly. Again, I'll come back to this on the screen in a minute, but verse five is clear. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So yes, there may be times when sexual activity is paused, but that time is intentional. It's not just letting it fall by the wayside. It's prayerful, and it's temporary. Then come together again. Why? Well, for many reasons in the Bible, including what God's saying here, that regular, satisfying sexual activity in marriage guards your husband or wife against sexual immorality. This is all over God's word. We won't dive into these passages here, but we see explicit language in Proverbs 5 about a husband's body and a wife's body filling one another with delight as they're intoxicated in each other's love. The same pictures all over the book of Song of Solomon. I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Our desire is for each other. It says we're sick with love. God has designed marriage for the display of passionate love. So if you are married, run to passionate, pure, loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife realizing that we do live in a broken world where spouses are prone to be unloving, selfish, even abusive, which, again, is not tolerable in any way. And knowing that we may have physical struggles that affect this satisfaction or past hurt that can make this satisfaction challenging I have a video on that resources side about what can be done when sexual activity is a struggle in marriage, where we hit on some of these issues. And I encourage you not just to use that resource, but share the struggle with other Christian brothers or sisters who can pray with you, walk with you, according to God's word, so that husbands and wives might do what God is calling us to do, has created marriage to do, to run to loving God-glorifying sexual activity in marriage, knowing that, so now we come back to where we started from the very first week of this series for all of us, whether single or married, knowing that each of our bodies, like 
clay in a potter's hands has been created and formed and fashioned by God himself. Yet in this broken world, we all have broken bodies. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has given his body to make our bodies new, to take our brokenness and turn it, transform it into beauty. And when we trust in him and his word more than we trust ourselves and certainly more than we trust what the world is saying around us, the lies that are being told to us, when we trust in God and his word, he will lead us for our earthly and eternal good. Remember, in all these commands in the Bible, God is pointing us to that which is good and he's protecting us from that which is not. All while calling every single one of us, some of us in marriage, some of us in singleness, but all of us, God is calling to deep and abiding fulfillment in him. To enjoy his good gifts, some in this way, some in that way, for the display of his gospel and ultimately for the glory of our God. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? And I just, I wanna give you a moment just to soak in. We've talked about a lot. But just to soak in what we've just heard from God. And I wanna ask you, in this room, one of our locations, wherever you might be watching online, just first and foremost, like, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus to forgive you of all your sins before God, to bring you into a relationship with God, to give you new, eternal life? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you like right now in the quietness of this moment just to say to God, God, today I want to experience new life through faith in Jesus. I know that I have sinned against you. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. Through faith in him, I can be restored to relationship with you and have new life, and you will take all my brokenness, and you will redeem and make me new. When you say that to God, the Bible talks about that as being born again, you experiencing new life through faith in him. I invite you to say that to him today, and for all who have, all who have new life, I was just so overwhelmed thinking about diving into this word today. There's so many different circumstances, situations, struggles, some in singleness, some in marriage. I just pray that God's word, by the power of his spirit, would just land in a helpful way on each individual heart. So I invite you just to lay your circumstances, your situation, your struggles even before God, honestly, and 
ask him for the help that he promises to give you when you ask. God, we, we pray. We want to glorify you with our bodies. So help us to do that in singleness. Help us to do that in marriage. According to your word, God, free us from the lies of this culture. Help us to trust the truth of your word. Help us all to run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. God, we pray for that for all of us. And we pray specifically for those who are married. God, we pray that you'd help us to experience loving sexual activity that brings glory to you in marriage. God, we, we pray in all of our circumstances with all of our situations, help us to glorify you with our bodies. We come to you with all kinds of brokenness and we pray that you would redeem us and make our bodies and our use of them in this world beautiful, good for us, and glorifying to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.